We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at a table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray, to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So we watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. I pray that you would come now and meet us, um, that you would meet us in our emptiness and fill us, that you would meet us in our brokenness and make us whole, that you would meet us in our shame and assure us that we are forgiven, your loved sons and daughters. God, some of us, we, we sit in this room and it's hard for us to believe that you could ever think these things about us or feel this way about us. Uh, But the gospel says that it's true. And your word says that it's true. And your son says that it's true. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come now and make it true for us? We need words from you. We need you to work in our life in a way that only you can do. All of us in this room whether we come here week after week and singing these songs and praying these prayers, whether it has been years since we have found ourselves in a church service or whether this is our very first time ever in church, we are all in the same place, needing to hear from you, God. And so we pray that you would come and do that now as we look at your word together. Make it alive to us by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good evening. I was like really focusing on that. Um, feel very disoriented right now. Um, okay, so today is actually a very special day in the life of our church. Um, today marks our five-year anniversary as a church. Amazing. Yes. 
We had our very first worship service five years ago this Sunday, March 18th, 2018. It was about half a mile from here. Some of you here tonight were in that room. Uh, We had a lot less people, and I had a lot less gray hair and wrinkles. Time has changed. Um, But let me just say this. Um, It is hard to believe what God has done in five years. God has done more... Uh, than anyone who was around then and a part of helping to start this church could have asked or imagined. I mean, story after story of people's lives who have been changed by the gospel. Stories of people who have met Jesus for the very first time and gotten baptized. Stories of people who have experienced deep spiritual renewal. Stories of people who have been away from the church for decades and have come back, stories of people who have found Christian community for the very first time in their lives, stories of people catching a vision for what it means to follow Jesus and live for a story bigger than our own, to be sent out to love our neighbor and our city as God has loved us. Um, It's a big day, and we are going to have a big celebration later in April. The reason we're not doing it today is because of the marathon, and I knew that these rows would be empty up front tonight. And so we want to celebrate this, we're going to do it later in April, but I just, I did not want, I did not want the day to go by just as an opportunity for us, and I feel like we should applause again, just as a sign of praise to God for what he has done so much. All right, so actually our text today, I think it feels like the perfect text for this occasion. Uh, We didn't plan this, you know, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, if you've been worshiping with us, and today we come to this story that, uh, this is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels, it's unlike any other story in the Gospels. Jesus says something that he says nowhere else in the Gospels, this This woman does some really shocking things, but what Jesus says is even more shocking. He says that wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the gospel is preached, that means that wherever his story is told, her story will be told. He says wherever he is talked about, she will be talked about. And we have been talking about Jesus and telling the story of the gospel together for five years as a community. And so I think it is just so perfect that we're looking at the story of this woman tonight. It's amazing that Jesus says this, isn't it? Let me put this into perspective a little bit. In the last couple years, uh, the Bay Area has seen a bunch of tech companies go public. Many of you have worked for these companies. Uber and Lyft and Pinterest and Airbnb. And many of these companies, they're worth billions of dollars. You know, statistically speaking, none of these companies will be around in 100 years. Very few companies last that long. In fact, it's, the statistics are uh, 45 companies out of a million last 100 years. Do you know how many last more than 200 years, one out of every billion. In a couple hundred years, people are not going to be talking about these companies. And guess who else they're not going to be talking about? You and me. 
We will, we will be long forgotten. But you know who they will be talking about? This woman. They've been talking about her for 2,000 years. And she's still being talked about today. I mean, that's, we, let's, that's like some serious staying power, okay? Um, why would Jesus say this about this woman? That wherever the gospel is preached, her story will be told? Why, why would you, this is basically what Jesus is saying. I want you to never forget the story of this woman. Why, why would Jesus say that? Why would he want us talking about her tonight? And as we look at this text, we're going to see that the answer to that question is this. This woman sees something about Jesus that no one else in this passage sees. She sees something about Jesus that no one else in this passage sees. Um, a little over a decade ago, the Washington Post conducted a social experiment. Uh, they took, uh, some of you may know this name, Josh Bell, who was one of the, you know, the, the best violin players in the world at the time. And uh, they sent him to a subway station in Washington, D.C. He was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt and a hat. And they asked him to stand beside a trash can and play music for 45 minutes during rush hour commute. Now, three days before this, he had played a, a concert, I think it was in Boston, where the tickets went for hun- literally hundreds of dollars. One of the best violin players in the world. And here he is in this subway station during rush hour commute. And that morning in that subway station, thousands of people walked right by him and they paid no attention. Guess how many people stopped? Seven people. Seven people stopped to listen. Seven people saw something that no one else saw. And that is exactly what is happening in this passage. This woman sees something about Jesus that no one else in this story sees. And in order to see what she sees, we need to understand this jar of perfume that she has. So let me set the scene for you. Jesus is eating in a house with a group of people, and he's in the house of a man named, what the text says, Simon the leper. And what all commentators say is, this must have been someone that Jesus healed. Because there's no way a leper would be hosting people for dinner. You couldn't do that. You were... You were a social outcast. And so Jesus is in the home of this man that he has healed, and they're eating a dinner, and they're sitting around this table eating when this woman walks in with this jar of perfume. Now, that seems strange to us, but this is very normal in the first century. Think about this. This is the first century. People walked everywhere, okay? There was not, there wasn't Uber, and there were not Lime scooters, by the way, do any of those work around this city? They, they all look trash, but okay. There weren't lime scooters. People walked everywhere, and they walked everywhere in sandals on roads that were not paved. These were roads that were dirty and dusty, and they were littered with feces. They did not have showers. They did not have running water. They did not have air conditioning. People did not smell very good. And so when you hosted a dinner party, it was customary to offer your guests, you know, a dab of perfume, like freshen everybody up, right? 
No one is surprised by this perfume, but what is shocking in this passage is what this woman does with it. Look at verse 3. It says that she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. She does not just give Jesus a dab. She gives him the whole thing. She, she breaks the jar and she pours all of it out on him. And here's what we know about this jar. We know that it was incredibly expensive. We know this because Mark actually tells us that this was worth a year's worth of salary, which, which, which probably meant that this was actually her life savings. Mark also, he says, it's an alabaster jar. And what that means is that this was probably like a family heirloom that had been passed down from generation to generation. Every, every commentator that I read this week said, this would have been the most valuable possession that this woman had. So why does she pour it all out? The answer is very simple. She pours it out because she found something more valuable than the jar. She found something infinitely more beautiful infinitely more worthy. And you see, the other guests, they thought Jesus deserved a dab because he was of some value. But this woman thought that Jesus deserved everything she had because she saw him as of ultimate importance and value. She pours it all out as if to say, Jesus, you can have it all. You can have all of me. You can have every part of me, every part of my life. I don't care what I lose. If I have you, I have everything that I need. Reminds me of this great hymn by Isaac Watts. Some of you know this. It's it's the wonderful cross. And there's this verse that says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus demands and deserves every single part of our lives. Now listen, that is a challenge for every single person in this room. For those of you in this room who are followers of Jesus, if we are honest with ourselves, there are parts of our lives that we are willing to give to him. And there are parts of our lives that we are not. There are parts of our lives that say, Jesus, we say, Jesus, you can have this, but you cannot touch this. And maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it is who you date. Maybe it is what you do with your sexuality. Maybe it's your politics. Maybe it's a refusal to forgive someone who has hurt you. But you see, the question is, is for, for all of us in this room tonight, me and pastor included, friends, what part of your life are you holding back from Jesus that he is calling you to give to him tonight? He is saying, stop playing games with me. I have come to take over your life. I've come to be at the very center of of your life. Now, for those of you who are exploring the claims of Jesus, maybe you hear this and you think, you know, this is what I don't like about all this Christianity stuff. This is too fanatical. 
too extreme. You say, I want a little, you know, I want a little bit of spirituality in my life, but I want it in moderation. Nothing too crazy, right? Listen, moderation works with cheeseburgers and ice cream and alcohol. But moderation does not work with Jesus. He is too big. He is too wonderful. He is too beautiful to be an add-on to your life. No, no, no. If you're going to have him, he has to be at the very center of your life. He has to be to you what he is to this woman. And you see, if you think about it, just think about it for just a moment, none of us live our lives in moderation. We are all like Gollum, and I'm not going to do the voice because that's creepy, but we all have something that we say, this is my precious, something of, of supreme worth and value, something that our hearts say, if I have this, then I have everything I need. If I have this, I will be happy. And here's the reality. The reality is, is that those things are making all sorts of demands on us. We wake up every single day and we do exactly what this woman is doing in this passage. We pour ourselves out for these things. We make all sorts of sacrifices to get them. What this woman is doing with Jesus, we are all doing with something. And the Bible, let's just step back for a moment, 30,000 foot view of the Bible. The Bible actually calls this an idol. What is an idol? An idol is anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. It is anything that becomes more important to you than God. And you see, idols, here's the thing about idols. They're often hard to identify. You know why they're hard to identify? The reason is because they are not typically bad things. No, no, no. Most often, they are good things that we have turned into ultimate things. They are good gifts that God has given us to enjoy, but we have turned them into gods that we worship. And you see, we all have them, all of us, every single one in this room. I don't care how religious or irreligious you consider yourself to be. Every single one of us in this room has them, and here is the great irony of idols. We think that they will make us free. We think if we get them, they will make us free, but in the end, they only make us slaves. Um, I have a friend who, uh, who knew someone who used to sleep with their pet snake. And uh, he swears this story is true. I'm a little skeptical, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell it to you anyways. He swears this story is true. He had a friend who used to sleep with his pet snake. This was not just like a little friendly, you know, garden snake. This was a massive boa constrictor, okay? He would share his bed with this snake. He slept in one half, and the snake slept in the other half. The snake stopped eating, and so he was like, my snake is sick. Like, I need to take this snake to the vet. The snake had not been eating for three weeks at this point. He's like, my snake is really, really sick. He goes to the vet. The vet looks at him and says, your snake is not sick. Whenever a snake is about to eat a really large prey, they stop eating. 
so they can make room. Now, what is the point? It's a lot, lot of points, a lot of things you could deduce from this story. Never sleep with a snake. Start there. Actually, here's the point. The point is that we think we control our idols, but they actually control us. We think that we possess them, but they actually possess us. We think that we demand them, but they actually make demands on us. See, in other words, they do not make you free. They make you a slave. And I want to give you three examples, actually, of how we see this in this text. Three examples. Here's the three idols. Here's the first. The first one is approval. Being well-liked by others. I know this one very well. Um, look at the text. Verse, in verses 1 and 2, the religious leaders, they are, they're scheming to arrest and kill Jesus. Look at this. Secretly. Why secretly? Why? Why when no one is looking? I'll tell you why. Because they do not want to lose the favor of the crowds. Do you know what happens when you live for the favor of others? It will control you in all sorts of ways. See, if you care about approval more than anything else, you will, you will change your behavior depending on whatever group you're with. You'd be like a chameleon. You see, you think you're controlling everyone's opinion of you, but the reality is that everyone's opinion of you is controlling you. You are a slave to what everybody around you thinks. You know, this is, Lecrae says it this way. He says, you live for their acceptance and you die from their rejection. See, but when you are no longer worried about what anyone says about you or thinks about you, you know what that makes you? Free. You are free. You are free from needing their approval. You are free from always needing to please. You are free to love other people rather than always trying to manipulate them. That's the first idol. Here's the second one. The second one is money. Now Mark gives us this little detail at the very end of the passage about Judas. And Judas betrays Jesus. What does he betray him for? For money. Money is a terrible master. Money is a good thing, but the moment that money becomes your God, it will run your life into the ground. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Listen to this. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus calls money a master because that's exactly what it is. It controls us. And money controls us in so many ways. Let me give you just a couple signs that money might be controlling you. Uh, you struggle with contentment, and you always wish you had more money. 
Or you live in constant worry about the future and you have a hard time believing and trusting that God is going to give you all that you need and take care of you. Here's another one. You resent people who have more money than you do. Or you, you overwork in order to get money and in the process of it, you neglect your friends, your community, your spouse, your children. Here's another one. You, 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 you can't give it away in large proportions to the church and to the kingdom of God in this city. Here's the last one. You're like, please, can we just end this? Here's the last one. You look to money for things that only God can give you. That's what an idol is. You look to money for things that only God can give you, like joy and peace and security and a sense of worth. Now, here's the third idol. And this one actually is a little more subtle, but it is so present. And we see it, I love this, everybody in this text is worshiping something. Do you see the point? Every, all of us in this room, we are worshiping something. You cannot escape that reality. You know why? Because you were made to worship. And you will worship something. We will find something to worship. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. And you see, everybody in this text is worshiping something. The religious leaders are worshiping something. Judas is worshiping something. You know what the last group is? The people around this meal. Look, the dinner guests, look at this. After she pours out the perfume, verse 4 says, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And listen to this. And they rebuked her harshly. Now, Jesus' response in this moment is very strange. And it has perplexed people and thrown a lot of people off because Jesus says in verse 7, the poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Now, what is going on here? Doesn't Jesus care about the poor? Someone? Yes, thank you. Jesus does. Let's start there. Okay, all right. Jesus cares deeply about the poor. Jesus talks about the poor as much as he talks about caring for the poor as much as he talks about anything else. Of course, Jesus cares for the poor. He says it over and over and over and over again. And so the question is, is Jesus like, is he flipping a switch here? Is he contradicting himself? Is he saying that we should not care for the poor? No, here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying that we are to love him more than we love anything else, including caring for the poor. And you say, wait, ooh, that does, still does not sound so great. Okay, let me try it this way. The more you love Jesus, the more you will love the poor. See, the more you'll love the things that he loves. And Jesus loves the poor. The more you love Jesus, the more you will love the poor. However, if you love the poor more than you love Jesus, you will do the same thing the guests are doing in this passage to this woman. You will look down on people who do not care about the poor as much as you do. You will be harsh. You will be self-righteous. 
and you will be judgmental. And this is the whole point of the passage, is that anything can become an idol and control you, including a concern for social justice. Now let me tell you, that is alive and well in this city. Uh, Francis Lee, who is a trans queer activist, uh, he grew up in the church and then he left it. He wrote an essay titled, Excommunicate Me from the Church of Social Justice. And in that article, he says this, when I was a Christian, all I could think about was being good, showing goodness and proving to my parents and my spiritual leaders that I was on the right path to God. All the while, I believed I would never be good enough, so I had to strain for the rest of my life towards an impossible destination of perfection. Now hear this, he says, I feel compelled to do the same thing as an activist a decade later. I self-police what I say in activist spaces. I stop commenting on social media with questions or pushback on leftist opinions for fear of being called out. I am always ready to apologize for anything that I do a community member deems wrong, oppressive, or inappropriate, no questions asked. The amount of energy that I spend demonstrating purity in order to stay in the good graces of fast-moving activist community is enormous. Activists are some of the judgiest people I have ever met, myself included. There is so much wrongdoing in the world that we work to expose, and yet grace and forgiveness are hard to come by in these circles. At times, I have found myself performing activism more than doing activism. I'm exhausted, and I'm not even doing the real work I am committed to do. It is a terrible thing to be afraid of my own community members and know that they are probably just as afraid of me. Now, here is what Lee, Lee is saying. He's saying you can use anything, even a concern for the poor or any cause of social justice that you want to pick out, and you can use it as a means of righteousness and self-justification. And if you do that, it will not make you free. It will make you a slave, and it will make you angry, and it will make you an oppressor, actually. You will become someone who is always either condemning people or being condemned by others. Everyone in this passage, everyone in this passage is enslaved to something but this woman. Do you see how free she is? She is free from approval. People are judging her, and she does not care what anyone thinks. And she is free from money. Judas is being controlled by his money. She is pouring all of hers out. She is free from all of these other gods because she has found a better God. She has seen something in Jesus that no one else in this passage sees. And she doesn't care if she has any of these other things. All she cares is that she has him. She's free. Harriet Tubman once said, she said, I freed a thousand slaves and I would have freed a thousand more if only they had known they were slaves. You are taking the first step to freedom when you acknowledge that you were enslaved to something. See, friends, if Jesus is not your God, then you will find a substitute one and you will be devoted to it and you will build your joy and your happiness and your sense of meaning 
on it and you will be controlled by it and you will make all sorts of sacrifices day in and day out for it, whether it is your career or kids or financial security or sex or substances or a relationship or being liked by others or being able to live as your authentic self or whatever social cause that you take up. And you see, the question is, is how do we become like this woman? Don't you want this kind of freedom? Of course you do. You were built for it. I was built for it. And we long for it. And the question is, is how do you get it? Two very quick, practical applications and we're done. How do you get it? You have to sit at Jesus' feet and you have to see his love. You have to sit at Jesus' feet. We learn the identity of this woman. Mark doesn't tell us, but both Matthew and John do. And it is Mary, not Jesus' mother Mary, but it is the same Mary whose sister was Martha and whose brother was Lazarus. It is the same Mary who in Luke 10 sat at Jesus' feet while her sister hurried around preparing for the meal. The same Mary that Jesus said only one thing is needed and Mary has chosen it. And she is at his feet. Really interesting, every time we see this Mary in the Gospels, she is at Jesus' feet learning from him, listening to him, talking to him, being in his presence. Some of you have never known God this way. But this is what she is doing, and this is what's offered to you this morning. And you see, uprooting our idols, it is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process of learning to sit at Jesus' feet of going to God and knowing that we have all sorts of other gods in our lives that we are giving ourselves to and pouring ourselves out to and loving more than we love God and looking to to satisfy us in ways that only God can. It is a lifelong process of going to God in confession and repentance and of being in God's presence through prayer and his word and with community and in worship and of sitting at his feet so that he can reshape our hearts. It's not a quick, I'm sorry, it's not a quick overnight fix. Your life is too big of a deal for Jesus for that. He is doing something much bigger and more beautiful than can be done overnight. He is making you into a new creation. He is reshaping your heart into what it was made to be so that you can be free, so that you can soar in life You have to learn to sit at his feet, but you have to also have to see his love. There is another reason, and it is a more beautiful reason that Jesus wants us to never forget this woman. It is not just that she sees something about him that no one else sees. It is that he sees something about her that no one else sees. Everybody in this house was so harsh with this woman. But Jesus was so kind. I mean, look at the way that he loves her. He defends her. They are rebuking her. And Jesus says, leave her alone. And then Jesus, he praises her. 
They say what she did was wasteful, and Jesus says, no, it, it's beautiful. And then he protects her. See, people think that, that the Bible is oppressive to women, but friends, no one was more affirming of women than Jesus. I mean, imagine what it must have meant for her to hear Jesus say, your story, your story will never be forgotten. I don't want the world to stop telling it. See, there must, there must be something that he sees about her. What is it? What does he see about her that no one else sees? And the clue comes in verse 8. Jesus says, she poured perfume on my body to prepare me for my burial. This is Jesus saying, I don't just defend this woman. I don't just praise this woman. I don't just protect this woman. I have come to die for this woman. And see, that must mean that when Jesus looks at her, he sees the same thing in her that she sees in him. What does she see in him? She sees something of infinite value, of infinite worth, of infinite beauty. What does Jesus see in her? Something of infinite value something of infinite worth, something of infinite beauty, something that is so precious that he is, will, he is willing to do for her what she has done for him. He pours himself out. And he doesn't just pour out his alabaster jar. He pours out his very life on the cross. And here is the wonder of all wonders. The Christian gospel says that he did not just do this for this woman. It says that he did it for you and me. It says that the God of the universe looked down and said, I don't care if I lose everything else, but if I have this, then I'll have everything I want. And you see, despite all of the ways that we have failed to love God, despite all of the ways that we have loved and given ourselves to other gods, God has not withheld himself from us. Let me ask you a question. Who else, what else, has ever, will ever, could ever love you like this? Your career will not love you like this. Your money will not love you like this. No amount of approval will love you like this. No social cause will love you like this. Jesus is the only God who, if you receive him, will satisfy you fully, and if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. This is the Christian story. And there is no other story like this story. And that is the story that this table points us to week after week. It points us to a God who says, before you pour yourself out for me, I pour myself out for you. Before you give yourself to me, I give myself to you. Before you sacrifice for me, I sacrifice for you. Before you love me, I love you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the love that is proclaimed to us at this table and in and through your Son. And I pray that tonight, God, you would break through the noise of our hearts and that you would help us to receive it in a new and fresh way, or maybe even for the very first time. What good news there is for us of a God who would love us like this, who would give all that you had in order to have us. Would you help us to believe this tonight as we eat and drink together? In Christ's name, amen.